All right, today's top 20 nitrate, phosphate, and nutrient mistakes. We've made a lot of mistakes. This is one of those conversations that evolves a lot. Oh, so updated to today, the biggest mistakes that we've made. Yeah, so the first mistake is not considering that every living organism, living plants, animals, the whole nine, takes up nitrogen and phosphorus or needs nitrogen and phosphorus to some degree for biological function. In fact, if you didn't have a source of nitrogen and phosphorus, there would be no source of living life on the planet. <laughs> uh, it's required for every living organism on the planet. So we have that pendulum of we use nitrate and phosphate to fight algae, but we end up killing the corals trying to fight that. And so we swing back over here, and then we have algae, and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, of course. But understand that nitrogen and phosphorus aren't just bad, they're actually required for the animal's growth as well. Closely related to that, number two. Yeah, the mistake is thinking that algae control is the primary reason that we control nitrate and phosphate. And when I first got started, it was bad nitrate, bad phosphate, and bad nutrients. And I don't want algae in my tank, so I'm gonna like keep them low and knock them down. And it actually wound up hurting my tank because I thought about it wrong. Yeah, so circa like 2002, uh, yes, definitely fight algae. Low uh, no <laughs> nitrate, low phosphate. And still, we, want, we don't have a polluted tank, mm. but we've also found that ultra low nitrate and phosphate is, if we're not thinking about it a holistic way in terms of nutrition, actually ends up starving out the corals as well. So, you know, it's a tool to fight algae, but we've actually found better tools yeah. being the tang gang and utilitarian fish or other methods of controlling algae this is more of a hammer solution in terms of lowering nitrate so far down that it starves it to death. All right, number three, this used to be blasphemy. <laughs> and the mistake is overlooking that you can actually dose nitrate and phosphate, complete opposite of where we were you know, 10, 20 years ago in understanding nitrate and phosphate. Actually, like, we, like you said just a second ago, our filtration and, and approaches to managing nitrate and phosphate has gotten so good sometimes too well and you need to bring it back in. Yeah, now we're changing out our filter socks in time, we're using fleece rollers, yeah. we're using a real skimmer. You know, the skimmer is actually like performing better because you know how to tune them now. Yep. Uh, we're using the refugium, we're using carbon dosing, we're using all these things. We've okay. reduced it down to like zero, zero nitrate and phosphate in the tank. Now, sadly, we may need to replace it. <laughs> now you can just feed more, and uh, but at the end of that uh, tunnel, if you find that feeding more isn't working for you, you can actually just dose uh, neonitro, neophos, or other similar products, and just dose phosphate or nitrate right to the tank mm. and solve your problem that way as well. Number four, this is being practiced a little bit more recently. Yeah, so the mistake is assuming that all food that you put in your tank is the same in that nitrate and phosphate ratio. And you know, maybe the pellets that I'm adding adds nitrate and phosphate the way that my cubes of mysis or something do, and it's actually far from each other. Yeah, so a lot of people have no problem with phosphate and nitrate's just skyrocketing. Or the opposite, they have no problem with uh, nitrate, yeah. but phosphate's got skyrocketing. So you can actually change your food because the food has different ratios in it. And for instance, it's very, very common for dry food to have a higher ratio of phosphate. So uh, if you want to reduce the accumulation of nitrogen to phosphorus, you could actually use a dry food. However, the opposite is probably even more commonly the issue, which is my nitrates are really low, but phosphate keeps rising. Mm. Frozen foods, in many cases, has a lower nitrogen to phosphorus ratio, meaning if phosphate or if nitrate is your problem or not your problem, and phosphate is frozen food might be your best bet. Number five. Is it nitrate and phosphate if the fish eat it all? <laughs> and so that's the mistake, is thinking that once the fish eat it, 
poof, nitrates and phosphates are gone, and it's the leftover food breaking down that's causing your nitrate and phosphate issues. And actually, uh, phosphate and nitrate still exist in the fish waste. Yeah, so the fish actually aren't that particularly good at utilizing all of the nitrogen and phosphorus in the food. Mm. So it just uses what it needs to you know, build up the amino acids and proteins and then it just excretes all the waste. And so it goes into the tank. So just because the fish ate it doesn't mean <laughs> that uh, you're not getting nitrogen and phosphorus or nitrate and phosphate added to the tank. It doesn't mean you're not getting waste, so you're feeding the right amount, but know that the waste does have a high amount of phosphate and nitrate. Number six, this is probably the biggest mistake of all time. Oh yeah, and that is removing one phosphate or nitrate without removing the other phosphate or nitrate. So classic example of this is GFO. It works really, really well at phosphate, doesn't really do much for nitrates. But if I'm only attacking one and not, and both levels are high, then uh, I'm doing my tank a disservice. It's actually really hard to maintain like zero, zero nitrate. Test kits don't even really measure down into the parts per billion the same way yeah. they do with uh, phosphate. But with phosphate, it's really, really effective. You can actually just precipitate out all of the phosphate right onto the iron media and maintain a pretty close to true zero, zero. Not like, like theoretical zero, zero, but uh, you know, effective zero, zero, yeah. which will starve out the algae. However, meanwhile, you have no algaes, tank looks awesome, nitrate starting to climb. Climb, climb, climb. A lot of people don't test. You know, really, you don't have any mechanism to export it. Yep. Now, in that environment, two things can happen. One, there's a lot of organisms that thrive in an environment where one of these things is depleted and the other isn't, and most of them are not good. Uh, <laughs> you're looking at things like dinos and other little ugly yeah. critters in your tank that just can take over in, in an environment like that, specifically in new tanks as well. The other problem in a more established tank is when I'm letting nitrate just rise perpetually and keeping phosphate down here, that tends to work. It looks fine, right? Yeah. Until. Mm. Phosphate rises, a little bit of algae takes hold, and then bam, Gone. it just explodes yep. in the tank. So you're creating like this battery for pests in your tank, allowing it to build up. So just addressing one of these independently isn't really wise. Make sure that you're looking at solutions that actually keep nitrate and phosphate down together. And then if one of them isn't working, there's solutions to help fix that. But you should be really thinking about that first one, which does them together. All right, number seven, this is that result of the pendulum slinging too far again. And so the mistake is aiming for zero, zero on your nitrates and phosphates. We just said, mistake number one, all living things need nitrogen, need phosphorus. So if you strip all of it out of the tank, where does that leave your living things? Yeah, and it's, it's a hard kind of conversation because in a natural, like a uh, ocean reef, they're often into the parts per billion, below our Way ability low. to test for. And yeah. It kind of looks like zero, zero uh, in the reef. But in the reef, they're actually way better at getting all of the like prey yep. and getting nitrogen and phosphorus from even absorbing amino acids through their tissue, as well as all of the prey they capture, the like plankton that comes in at night or with the moon. And they're able to capture that, digest it, and break down the sources of nitrogen and phosphorus. So they're a little less dependent on the nitrate and phosphate in the water. In the reef tank, because we're not as good at getting prey to them, mm. it really isn't really helpful to get down to that zero, zero, or actually nitrate, or uh, like super, super, super low nitrogen and phosphorus level, because it will harm the zooxanthellae, and then in turn the coral as well. Number eight, I already hinted at this one. Yeah, the mistake is not having an understanding of what 0.03 phosphate as a goal means. 
Yeah. So in the past, I mean, you've, you've seen people tell you be below 0.03 and phosphorus uh, all the time or phosphate. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the purpose of that was because you were fighting algae. You were trying to starve the algae to death. Uh, <laughs> you know, you were trying to make sure it could not grow and hopefully actually just dies from the lack of nitrogen and phosphorus availability. Right. That's great if algae is your problem. However, if algae isn't your problem, what you've just done is starve the algae that lives within the coral, being mm. the zooxanthellae. So uh, the zooxanthellae doesn't have the nitrogen phosphorus, it won't be able to provide energy to the coral, it won't be able to provide uh, the things that make up amino acids and in turn proteins. So, bad. Uh, it really depends <laughs> on what you're trying to achieve uh, in your instance. If you're trying to fight an algae outbreak, great. If you're using it to prevent one, know that you're preventing coral growth as well. Number nine, how often should you test? Yeah, so the mistake is not testing nitrate, phosphate, at least once a month. And once a month is probably good enough to get that trend. But I've seen a lot of people on forums, groups, what have you, just say, I don't keep track of my nitrates and phosphates. I think partially, partially that's because you don't really know what to do with the result. It's ah. 0.1, it's 0.2, what right like, what's now? the right goal? Nobody really knows. Yeah. This is why you should track it once a month trends. Mm. If it's 0.1 this month and 0.2 next month and 0.3 this month, you know where you're going and it isn't anywhere good. <laughs> uh, if it's also 0.431, you can see you're trending to also somewhere any good. So really it's just 12 times a year isn't that big of a deal. You perform the test kit and now you can match your filtration to your feeding input to the livestock and your maintenance schedule and if you're seeing things trend up drastically or down and you know that it's not stable, you can actually correct for that. And it's part of understanding the food input and the filtration and optimizing your tank. Number 10 is the inverse of that and why I wouldn't really do it more than once a month. Yeah, so the mistake is chasing numbers instead of those trends that he was talking about, meaning every week or so I'm testing nitrate and I'm gonna do something about the result. You know, whether that meaning that I've probably picked a very specific goal for each one of these and somewhere along the way, and now I'm gonna do everything I can man scientisty to keep it at that level. Yeah, so for instance, often people will tell you, go for 0.04 phosphate. Mm. How? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you could, but now I'm playing mad scientist trying to like peg this very specific number. And I will tell you that our tanks don't need that specific number to thrive. And really what we're doing is creating you know, artificial instability. Mm. All we really wanna do is trend in a safe zone. So pick a zone that you're okay with and then just trend inside of that and make sure you're not deviating way outside of it. If you are, correct for it. Number 11, this is probably the best filter in the whole tank. Yeah, and the mistake is overlooking your corals as that filtration, as maybe the number one filtration, especially when you get down the road and your tank is full of them consuming nitrogen and phosphorus. Yeah, the corals, uh, or at least in a tank that is just filled with wall-to-wall -wall coral, they're actually sucking up more nitrogen and phosphorus than you can even put in in many yeah. cases. You end up in that zero-zero, and all of a sudden they get pale and this tissue mm. gets thin. So you can solve that with feeding more. You can solve that with amino acids uh, when you've already like uh, proven that your fish can't get any fatter. You need to find <laughs> different solutions. Uh, and some people will actually just, again, find you know adding in just sodium nitrate or uh, 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 phosphate directly to the tank actually is an easier solution for them. 
but really once uh, the tank gets robust, the corals might be the best filter in the tank. So in terms of effective filters, I think this is uh, probably one of the best. As a mistake is not tuning your refugium. If you have your refugium up and running and you're not making adjustments to its lighting schedule, the intensity, you know, how often you light it based off of your nitrate and phosphate tests, then you're really not using the tool effectively. Yeah, so that's really the trend piece of this. So if I find over the course of the month that uh, my nitrate and phosphate levels went up 30%, what if I took my photo period from my refugium and uh, upped it 30%? Mm. Or the inverse as well. If I'm finding that the levels are continually dropping and I don't want them near zero, zero, what if I just did uh, half the amount uh, of uh, photo period or even every other day? Mm -hmm. So understanding you can adjust your filter, in this case the refugium, to match the actual desires for the tank and as well as your trends when you're testing monthly is really the key. Number 13, this is obvious after the fact. Yeah, so the mistake is not tuning your filter socks. That kind of sounds funny. I'm going to tune my filter socks, but it's true. You can either change them out more frequently or change them out less frequently, which actually retains or gets, re retains or gets rid of nitrates and phosphates on different levels. Yeah, so if your nitrate and phosphate levels are rising uh, undesirably and you're changing out your filter socks every week, try every five days instead. Yep. Three we found is about optimal but you can really scale that width at your desires. If you want the levels to you know, artificially rise, you can just let the filter stocks stay in there longer as well. Number 14, a lot of people say they're doing this, but maybe not optimally. And so the mistake is another filter that you're not tuning, and that is your protein skimmer. And there's multiple ways that you can tune this thing, you know, specifically, you know, maybe the way you collect it, whether it's wet or whether it's drier, or even adjusting the air, but using the nitrate and phosphate as the tool for that change. Yeah, just the frequency at which you clean it out even. You mm -hmm. know, the dirty neck may collect uh, last waste uh, in the cup. So if you really think about tuning it, make sure that it's actually installed at the right water level. Mm -hmm. Then if you're just seeing lots and lots of bubbles, it's just boiling, but not producing anything, try turning the air back actually, and you might find that it starts producing the foam. But adjusting the air to that organic mix, like kind of the fuel to air ratio, can produce a totally different type of foam. Not just collecting wet or dry, but creating wet or dry, and then using that uh, like a riser pipe to be able to collect it differently as well. But you can tune your skimmer, maintenance it better, to adjust to your monthly tests. All right, number 15, you can tune pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah, and the mistake is not tuning your carbon dosing approach, if that's what, one of the approaches you're on for us. You know, it's something like the KZ for the BRS-160, and there's some very specific dosing instructions. And if you find that your nitrate and phosphate trends are trending outside of where you want to be, do a little more, do a little less. Yeah, I think one of the biggest tuning problems actually with carbon dosing is people implement carbon dosing mm -hmm after the levels got really high. And then yeah. they figure out this dose that brings it, you know, from 20 parts per million nitrate all the way down. And then they keep that dose. Yeah, you gotta scale it. Yeah, you gotta scale it way down because the amount that you add every day is so different than the amount that you started with uh, <laughs> at 20 parts per million. So really scale it down until you start to see it rise again. And then you know that you found the right little pocket and you can adjust to it. Number 16, this was uh, really popular when I started, but not so much anymore. 
Yeah, so the mistake is considering your water changes as one of the main exports for your nitrates and phosphates. And you know the mistake here is, well, there's a couple different things. One is size of tank. This could be a limiting factor for managing nitrates and phosphates because it just takes so much dang work and the amount of gallons to keep up water changes that make it effective. Uh, but in the same breath too, like if I got a small little tank and it's nitrates and phosphates are high and then about a month later, I just do a 100% water change on it. You're talking about just a roller coaster of nitrate and phosphate and lack of stability. So the big thing for me is also understanding what you're doing. Meaning if I do a 10% water change on something that's 20%, uh, uh, 20 parts per million nitrate, it's now 18. Yeah. It only dropped to 10%. Yeah. So it really doesn't go as much as you think. And even in the same case, if I did an amazing 50% water change, filled it up with 50% new water, 50% of the pollutants are still there. <laughs> I still have 10 parts per million nitrate. And depending on what you're looking for, maybe that's good. But you can think about that in terms of phosphate as well. Mm -hmm. And really, the, the dilution factor here is a lot, a lot of work when all those other methods actually maintain a fairly low nitrate and phosphate with way less work than hauling around buckets of water. Number 17, nitrate and phosphate levels in natural seawater levels are generally into the parts per billion below most of our test kit's ability to even measure for, mm. what we'd actually call zero for zero if we were trying to test for it. But if we're gonna to try to achieve that in a reef tank, you need to think about it differently. Yeah, so the mistake is not considering the source of nitrogen and phosphorus if you're going to maintain those near like ultra low nutrient systems where it's pretty close to zero that you're testing for. So you gotta make up for it and you do that by adding prey. So, you know, your amino acids, coral foods, different things like that, overcompensate with those. Yeah, so we're actually trying to create that environment yeah. that they have in the ocean, where in the ocean, they're capturing all of those sources of prey, digesting them, mm -hmm. adding it. So in our tanks, we have those amino acids, we have the uh, like particulate foods, yeah. the waste, the foods, all which have nitrogen and phosphorus sources in them. And if we feed them, we can actually recreate the natural environment a little bit more accurately. But if you have that near zero, zero, you need to think about alternative sources. Number 18, this is true, and I don't think people respect it enough. And so the mistake is not realizing that phosphate is a poison to coral growth. Yeah, poison meaning that there's a <laughs> calcium carbonate crystal, mm -hmm. right? It's forming the calcium carbonate, which attracts more calcium carbonate. However, if phosphate finds its way onto the outside of that calcium carbonate crystal, it's called poisoning the surface. Mm. It makes it less attractive to new calcium carbonate uh, crystals, slows down calcification and in turn growth. Well, is that just nerdy science or is it real? And the real part of it is it can slow down growth as much as 40% with just low levels as low as 0.1, mm. right? 0.1 is a pretty common level for a lot of people to have. 40%, which means compounded over time, 40% on 40%. If you correct it, it goes the other direction as well. So note that. It's really, really important to know if you're not getting the growth that you're looking for, maybe lowering the phosphate levels down will help you achieve it. All right, number 19, there are other sources of phosphorus in the tank. Yeah, so the mistake here is not considering like, if you use a calcium reactor, the media inside does add phosphate to your tank. So if, you're, if you think that oh, I've got my food down, I got all this, I can't figure out where this stuff is coming from, some of it might be the stuff you're using in the tank. Yeah, for instance, we also found like Pucani oh, uh, yeah. would add uh, nitrogen and phosphorus from breaking down the organics. And then even after that, Still it would slowly bound. trickle out yeah. some small amount of phosphorus over time until it fully cured. 
but definitely the calcium reactor media, that's the type of skeleton you're just melting. So everything in there, including the phosphorus that poisoned that calcium carbonate crystal in the wild, mm. is getting now dissolved and added to your tank as well. Number 20, you don't know what you don't know. As the mistake is that the conversation about nitrate and phosphates and nutrients that we're having today will probably change again in the future because even just recently over the past few months we've learned a whole lot more. So stay up on top of the conversation about nitrates and phosphates. Learn with us. Yeah. So here's the big thing, man, is how does nitrate, phosphate interact with not just the inorganic stuff that mm. we've learned a lot? How does that really play into the organic or the fish turds and amino acids yeah. and extra fish foods and all that other stuff that ends up in the tank? And then how does that interact with other things? Like if we like add rocket fuel to grow the coral skeleton faster with pH and elevated levels, do we need to take a new approach to also increasing our ability to grow tissue with nitrogen and phosphorus? And how does all this work together? So the conversation is evolving, and what we knew yesterday will always be different tomorrow. All right, if there's only one thing that you heard today, let it be this. Yeah, for me, it's you'll start using these nitrate and phosphate kits, but do it once a month at least to follow a trend. And then that trend you can actually make slight adjustments for as you're going up and as you're going down. I know alkalinity, I can peg at a very specific number. This, not as important. And for me, if you're gonna talk about nitrate and phosphate, well, we can talk about it at the inorganic levels that uh, are actually almost non-existent in the parts per billion in the ocean. Or we can talk about the sources of nitrogen and phosphorus as prey, which is where a lot of it comes from in the ocean, arguably most, and maybe that's the missing piece of what we know about our mm. reef tanks, is how do we find that organic nitrogen and phosphorus and prey, amino acids, particulate foods, and how do we perfect that over time? An effort put into that will probably get closer to natural seawater results. So if you really wanna dive into this, we have 11 episodes of mastering nutrients, nitrate and phosphate, the whole gambit, understanding how all of this works together to achieve a result in our tanks, and you can find it right here.